Hi, welcome to the latest reflection on what I'm now calling the Bible in one year-ish. Well done to those of you who managed to finish the Bible in one year. Certainly of you managed it by December the 31st. And this reflection, if you did that, will be covering really old stuff for you. Siggy finished it, she says. Others might not have got it finished, but I'm encouraging you not to give up, however long it takes. And because it's, I'm recording this at the start of early January, the, so, so some of you may have actually just started on a Bible in one year reading plan. Good for you. You may find it helpful to watch or listen to some of the earlier reflections as you go along. Or you may have never got started a Bible in one year reading plan or maybe you gave up. But you're still welcome to join in with these reflections and uh, I pray that you will find some reward in doing so. This reflection covers days 181 to 187, which largely covers Paul's journey to Jerusalem, where he's arrested and stands trial before all sorts of official leaders, all of whom struggle to work out why he's there. And none of them have the guts to quite just get around going, you know what, I'm just going to release this guy. The Old Testament readings cover the ministry of Elisha, not to be confused with his predecessor, Elijah. A few things stand out for me this week. One is the sense of how we can become really quite misguided and even act quite harmfully when we think we are doing right. The leaders who are accusing Paul aren't out and out nasty. Very few people are evil for the sake of it. They can generally find a good reason why they're doing what they do. And that's the same with the leaders in Acts. They genuinely think Paul is leading people astray. They think they're defending God's honour. And Paul kind of gets that. In Acts 22 on day 183, he admits that those accusing him are zealous and that he once shared their zeal. In just outside this section on day 188 in Acts 26, he's before Agrippa and he admits that there was a time when he too would have thought he was doing right by opposing these Christians. But he had come to a different position when he had encountered the risen Christ and he had realised how wrong he was. And that in his seal, he had actually been acting quite sinfully and acting against what God had wanted. Some of the leaders seem not to recognise the oddity of plotting to have someone killed and still think they're doing the right thing and still think well, this is God's work. But then again, how often have people thought they're defending God's honour or thought that they're being they're standing up for the right and they do really evil things? It's been said that perhaps the more honourable the thing you think you're defending, the lower you will stoop to defend it. And what could be more honourable than God? Also, it's interesting how when they bring their charges, so many of these leaders... They're fighting in front of them. They, they just sort of think, really? That's what you've brought this guy here for? They can't work out what they're arguing about or why it matters. And, and why should they? It's not part of their tradition and what they've grown up with. And there's a sense of, how come that's what's bothering you? 
I'm conscious of how easy it is to find ourselves as people of faith, even in today's world, having debates and fallings out over stuff that other people would just think, really? That's quite ridiculous. And I'm thankful that as Baptists we don't end up playing out these differences in the full glare of the media. Or most of the time we don't anyway. And yeah, if only because people really don't care what Baptists think compared with, say, the Church of England, who will end up having these debates on Sky News or Newsnight. But nonetheless, this challenges me about keeping perspective. Another thing that comes up in this uh, section is the question of where do we turn for help? On day 182 in 2 Kings 3, there's a rare act of collaboration between the nations of Israel and the nations of Judah and they set out for battle together with Moab. And if I'm shaking around, it's because Ziggy is now poking at the, at the tripod. They're going, after going round in circles for seven days, they run out of water and Joram, who's the king of Israel at this time, gets really frustrated and then Jehoshaphat says to them, do you not have a prophet of the Lord around here? Anyone who might help? And that's when Joram goes, oh yeah. And Elisha, despite the fact that Joram was really no friend of his, comes to their aid. Then on day 183 in 2 Kings 5, where the king of Aram sends Naaman to Israel for healing, the king gets upset, he tears his robes, he assumes that Aram is setting him up for failure or picking a fight, and Elisha has to re remind him that you, know, you do have a prophet here, there is someone here who can help you. I'm also reminded of a couple of glimmers of grace in, in or light in what is quite grim dark reading for much of the book of kings on day 185 we catch a glimpse of grace where jehoram the king of judah who's turned away from what god wants and has married into ahab's family and he's following all the stuff that ahab who was one of the most evil kings of Dan, and he does evil but god remembers his promise to david and likewise on day 187 in second kings 13 we read how jehoaz was not a good king of Israel. In fact, none of the kings of Israel get a good write-up. The Lord was gracious to him and had compassion and showed concern because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And even in the darkness, God remained faithful. And even when we forget God, he does not forget us or give up on us. But I want to quickly look at the story of Elisha and Elijah in 2 Kings 2, day 181. Elijah is about to be taken up into heaven and it seems everyone knows it. Everywhere he goes, people are saying, Elisha, the Lord's going to take your master from you. And he keeps saying, yeah, I know. There's no need to go on about it. And Elijah offers Elisha several chances to turn back and let him do this last bit on his own. But Elisha refuses. And we don't really get a sense of why he makes that offer. He might have been testing Elisha. He might have wondered if Elisha could handle what was to come. Maybe Elijah just wanted to do this last bit alone. And then we get to the crux. Elijah asks Elisha what he wants from him. And Elisha says, give me a double portion of your spirit. 
I used to think this was a really cheeky request, that he was saying, I want to be twice as good as you. And actually, it was more of an inheritance thing. When an estate was divided, the eldest son would get a double portion. And Elijah had called Elisha to be his successor. It was like he was the eldest of son of the prophet. On, on that day, Elisha was promised an inheritance. And, and since then, he had followed his master through thick and thin. Two kings have gone and now those and these two have survived together. And now the day of parting has arrived and Elisha wants to know that the promised inheritance will be his. When Elijah is gone, there will be still work to be done. His master's business will need to continue. So he asks not just for the eldest son's share of the blessing, but for the right to carry on his master's work in his master's name. And to do so, he will need the same spirit that rested on Elijah to rest on him. If you see me when I'm taken from you, says Elijah, it'll be yours. Otherwise, no. And I'm sure Elisha would have liked something a bit more positive. I know I would. What was he saying here? I think it's this, that what's about to happen is going to be difficult. Elijah's master is, or Elisha's master is about to be taken up into heaven. Elijah is about to be glorified. But it's going to be painful. Elisha will be left behind. The wrench and the pain is going to be real. But says Elijah, if you can see through that to the other side and to what lies ahead, then it's going to happen. But only the Spirit of God can show you that. And Elisha does see, and the Spirit of God is faithful. Although Elijah is viewed as the prophet extraordinaire, Elisha does ultimately become twice as powerful. He does greater things than Elijah, even if he can't take people mocking him for his boldness. Yes, I invite you to go away and read Second Kings. And, you know, cause when people sort of mock me for my boldness, I often think, what would Elisha do? But now the spirit of Elijah drives Elisha forward. And I'm reminded of what Jesus says to his disciples when he says, you're going to do even greater things than I did. What? Greater than Jesus? And then the power of the spirit. They did. They took his message way beyond the narrow area that Jesus covered. And Paul was a big part of that. But it was only possible because Jesus passed the Spirit on to us. And the Spirit enables us to be his followers. Without the Spirit, we can do nothing. With the Spirit, we can do far more than we imagine. So may the Spirit lead us into truth. May the Spirit help us to see what truly matters and keep us from turning the good God has given us into something we use destructively. May we know the grace of the Spirit when we get it wrong and may we lean into the Spirit rather than on our own strength so that we don't need those have you not got a God to turn poo moments? Because we're already leaning on him. And may we be all that God created us to be.
grace and peace. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to lean on you, to know that you have given us your spirit. Help us to be all that you call us to be because we are leaning on you. Amen. God bless you.